You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and with me, officially back in studio together, my co-host with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Paul. Hey, great to be back here in the studio. Nice to see you. And um, because uh, I'm the only person that you get uh, within uh, eight feet of, <laughs> we don't have to have masks, although we are clear five feet apart. Yeah. I mean, we we are each other's bubble, essentially. I mean, you have your family. Well, stuff. I've got my kids and my kids go to school. And so you were exposed to the bubble that's exposed to the bubble. But yeah. you also might be immune. You might have be carrying so much resistance from having had it. Of course, that's almost a year ago now. I right? might already be dead and this might be some weird horrifying afterlife. <laughs> Feels like it's some days. Feels like it's some days. Well, I just wanted to start the podcast today with a shout out to the police officers that are on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many wonderful police I've officers met on Twitter. So many of them lately. And for all the years that I've been going to traffic court, for whatever reason, pre pandemic, I never met the Twitter officers. But since the pandemic, I've met so many of the Twitter officers, and they're just wonderful. Yep. That's great. And we are recording today on Zach's birthday. Zach is a uh, lawyer who recently started working with us in our firm. Great, nice young fellow. Originally, I think, from Winnipeg, but it's studied at uh, UVic. Yep. And it's his birthday today, of course, not the day of the podcast. So if you're, you know, thinking to wish Zach a happy birthday, you'll be one day late. But but that's okay. Zach won't mind. Two shout-outs. No, he's, yeah. he's just an easygoing fellow. He's great. Yeah. And uh, welcome to the firm, Zach. He's finally going on the letterhead. He's been here for a few weeks. Oh, yeah, the letterhead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and business cards and Well, stuff. that's the thing with the pandemic. Like, nobody's handing out business cards, so I've been reluctant to order some. I ordered business cards yeah, for... Lawyers got to have business cards. Oh, I know, but you can't give it to people because you can't reach out and touch things. And so it's not like i What if I've... you go to a really good sandwich place and they're like, drop your business card in for a chance to win free sandwiches. Yes. And I've or also ordered business cards for Alora, who is a student from UBC who works with us. Yes. And Alora is wonderful. Shout out to Alora. Yeah. Who is wonderful. Alora, and who she had that last Jeopardy. Yes. Last week, <laughs> dressed like Alex Trebek. It was awesome. <laughs> and she did Jeopardy. Was this uh, it was um, for, Indigenous students? It was for Indigenous Awareness Week at Allard Law, um, or UBC Law, as some people prefer to call it. And uh, she she hosted. It was fantastic. I heard her in the boardroom <laughs> doing it. Uh, and I left. All of a sudden, this voice got really loud, and I was getting ready to leave in any event. And I realized what was going on. And my God, was she good. Like, yeah. I'm ready to I'm ready to back her if she wants to go national with uh, Indigenous Students Jeopardy. Well, she could just replace Alex Trebek. They're still looking for... She could. She could. And if they want to uh, do the deep search, they will find her. And they will also discover that she would be a fantastic replacement. Yeah. And unlike Ken Jennings... <laughs> didn't tweet any ableist comments. Oh, did Ken Jennings? Yes. Okay, I don't I don't want to know. Anyway, moving on. Now I'm that sure we've made this Ken depressing. Ken Jennings is not perfect. No. Now that we've talked about the imperfection of people, I think it's important to start with a an important ruling from the BC Supreme Court on motor assisted cycles. 
So this is the one of the more confusing pieces of driving law related regulation out there. Yeah, we've opinion. seen this a couple of times with people who are charged with driving while prohibited. So if you are driving a motor assisted cycle, you are not required to have a driver's license or insurance. If you're prohibited from driving, you can still operate it, but it and, has- And ICBC will not sell you insurance. Correct. But it has to be a motor assisted cycle. Like those little scooters aren't all motor assisted cycles. And that's where people get into trouble. They think, oh, I'm allowed to have this. But they're not. Looking for some sort of crossover thing that might quite yeah. sort of almost be like a motorcycle easier instead of a... Easier than walking. Easier than walking. Allow you to, you know, ride without the stigma and... Um, ride ride a bike without pedaling as much. Basically. Now well, you have a motor-assisted cycle. I do. And my motor-assisted cycle fully meets the requirements. It brakes uh, when you stop pedaling. Mm -hmm. You, it will not, uh, the, the motor does not click in until you're at three kilometers an hour. Um, the motor actually starts to break you when you get to, uh, to over 30 kilometers an hour. I think I can get just one or two kilometers an hour over and I'm so on Burrard Bridge. You to 32. Pushing so. it down. Well, on, on, when I get on Burrard Bridge coming, uh, down the other side, um, I can shut it off and then I can go faster. I put it on zero and it will not break me. Uh, but that's the only time that I can get uh, over um, over the uh, and that's thirty-two just kilometer using pure hour. pedal power. That's pure pedal power at that point and gravity. Um, so mine fully meets the requirements of the law and uh, kind of surprised me because I haven't seen it anywhere in BC. Mine, uh, you know, is from an Italian company, uh, but it, it gets up to speed awful fast. And if I <laughs> if I set it on level five, I really don't have to pedal much. Like I I'm not breaking a sweat. That's for sure. Okay. Well, anyway, this case is an appeal, a crown appeal, very rare to see crown appeals of acquittals in traffic court. Um, but it was a crown appeal from acquittal for a guy whose name I cannot pronounce. W-O-J-T-K-I-W. Yes. I thought maybe Vochki. 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 Vachki. It was probably pronounced with a V, Wojcicki. the first letter. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Looks very Polish to me. It's, it's definitely a Polish name. Um, and uh, he was driving what he said was a motor-assisted cycle, um, but it didn't really comply with the legislation in every respect. Um, and so the uh, court had to determine whether or not it fell within the definition. So at, at, at the um, at the traffic court level in provincial court, he was acquitted and he was acquitted um, because it was found to be a motor assisted cycle. It had pedals. Um, and uh, they, he was also charged with an offense, a motor vehicle act offense. And I guess he was acquitted of that as well. Um, yeah. A separate offense. What was it? I can't remember. Hmm. Um, operating without a license, I guess. Yeah, oh, passing was... on the right on the roadway. Um, which I guess you could probably do on a bike. You can do on a bike. In fact, but, you're obligated to. But on you a can't bike. do it on a on a motor motorcycle. On a motor assisted cycle, you can. Right. So that was uh, part of it, and it was uh, it was JJP Gordon on the island. Yep. Was, and uh, he lovely. had he had moved the pedals. He'd essentially altered the bike from its original state to move the pedals to be like behind the bike seat. So the bike was running purely on the electric power. And we've seen this before. Mm -hmm. I've seen this before with people who were charged with driving while prohibited. And I think that is the reason that the Crown appealed this. Yep. Uh, because 
although he could put his pedals back into the position with a wrench that he had with him. Yeah, I can uh, do it. It'll only take me two minutes. They weren't uh, something that were actually actively engaged in the operation of the of the bicycle. And he was acquitted because although the JJP said, you know, okay, this is unconventional, it doesn't fail to meet the definition because it's still got working pedals. It's still speed rated for 32 kilometers an hour. It's still, you know, got the right wheel size and this and that and the other thing. Um, so it, and it's uninsurable. It was important in that case that he'd tried to get insurance and couldn't. Yeah. Um, and so he was found not guilty of driving without insurance, in part because he couldn't possibly obtain it in the first place. So how could you expect him to get an insurance policy that he can't get? Because they won't sell him one for it. Well, I see BC won't sell him one. I'll insure him. <laughs> no, you won't. Um, the, uh, he was speeding, right? He was going 48 kilometers an hour or something, but he said he had just come down a hill. Yeah, and he but he was going about for about a kilometer at that <clears throat> speed. Yeah, well, I mean, there's... He, he testified and it was accepted by the JJP. So on the appeal, the Supreme Court overturned the acquittal, sent it back for a new trial, which seemed odd to me because it seems like it's one of those situations where there's no need to send it back for a new trial, given the evidence. Yeah, you can't change it at this point. So it's not going to suddenly become a motor, but whatever. Yeah. Um, they said that the, the pedals are effectively an essential marker of a motor assisted cycle. So the pedals need to be there. They need to be operating and in fact operated by the bike rider in order for it to still be a motor assisted cycle. This is hardly a mystery. I mean, I'm, I was surprised he was convicted because the definition is really, really clear in the regulations. It says, um, I mean, it defines, can have a continuous power outrate, uh, power output ratings that do not exceed 500 watts, not to be uh, capable of propelling the motor-assisted cycle at a speed greater than 32 kilometers an hour. Um, and um, it has to, um, there must be pedals or a crank that are attached that will allow the cycle to be propelled by human power. Um, so it really comes down to pedals as far as I'm concerned. I don't see any, I mean, there's other things too. It's got a have a, uh, uh, it's got to have the ability to be propelled by human power alone. Yep. And the motor has to stop when the operator stops pedaling. So that kind of tells you exactly that there's got to be pedals. You've got to be spinning those pedals. You've got to be swinging those, swinging your feet around in order to have the thing operating. But this case is important because it answers, I think the questions that we get a lot and that our listeners write in on, which is, if I buy this piece of equipment that has a motor, but also has pedals, and use it, am I required to get insurance and have a license? Yeah, and or am I driving while prohibited yeah. uh, in the circumstances where I've got, you know, modified it this way, modified it this way, modified it this way. So it is useful for that. Um, you know, I, I think, like I looked at, at the decision, I thought the judge went beyond what she needed to do here um, because she also, she instructs herself correctly at the beginning with respect to the acceptance of the findings of fact of the JJP or of the, of the yeah, the findings of fact of the JJP. But then when she gets to the end, she, she basically overturns his finding of fact 
in a manner that was unnecessary with respect to the speed he was driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, the, the, it's, it doesn't affect the legal question at all. Uh, the only legal question really to me was the issue of pedals. And yes. the pedals being folded back were the only thing was, you know, was the thing that took it outside of the definition. So if you're out there with a motor-assisted cycle and you've done something cute with your pedals, <clears throat> fix it now before you hit the road again. You got to make sure those pedals can be spinning. Other things are going to be difficult for the police to prove, like like the watts, the number of watts, whether or not you um, the motor clicks in before it's up to three kilometers an hour, whether or not the motor stops when you stop pedaling. I mean, all of those things they, are they. But actually, this leads us into a different discussion, but an important discussion. How do police prove that in traffic court? Well, that's the point. That's why I say all of those other things can be very difficult to prove. I was looking at my bike. And I think I could probably, you know, it's got electronics that control it, but I, there might be some electronic override. I bet it's got the capacity, it's supposed to be able to go 70 kilometers. I bet it's got the capacity to go faster. And I bet I could get into the programming and probably override the 32 kilometer an hour uh, limit, for example, in it. Um, I'm not going to do it. But how would a police officer know if I didn't, if I was just claiming, look, I outpedaled the motor? So here's what a police officer could do. Let me tell you how a police officer could prove it. They would need to get the make and model of your bike, which they can get when they stop you. And then they would need to research the information, find it from the manufacturer. Hearsay. Ah, but Paul, these are prosecuted under the Offense Act. And so the JJP has authority under the provisions of the Offense Act to admit any evidence that they think in any form that they think is in the interests of justice to admit. It's got to meet a, a probative value and, and reliability yeah, test, though, too. but a printout from a manufacturer's website, I think you could but easily how do you know say. That, how do you know that there isn't models? There's all sorts of, I mean, okay, we're now talking about what we would be arguing in court. Yeah. But yes, that but, is one of the methods they could do it. But I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that in traffic court, you can get around some of the ordinary rules of evidence by using those provisions of the Offense Act that allow any evidence to be admissible so long as the JP thinks it's fit. True. Um, and of course, the, uh, you know, the Crown has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't, I think they would have some problems with that. But obvious modifications like the pedals, uh, you know, that's a very, very easy one for them to prove. If you've modified the pedals such that oh, yeah. they are no longer pedals and the police officer's got it right there, it's not intrusive to, to mess with the pedals and try it. Well, and I had... the police officer's not going to ride the bike, but it's not intrusive to mess with the pedals and see whether or not the pedals can be spun and whether or not your feet can go on the pedals. And I had one so where, where one pedal had fallen off entirely and uh, the person had it with them. And they were like, well, I had the pedal with me. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and then I had another one where... But what about an emergency situation where the pedal comes off? Yeah, but then at that point, you're, it's no different than if your tire falls off your car, Paul. You don't drive, continue to drive your car on the rim. So when I was riding my bike last year, <laughs> I was uh, downtown riding to work and uh, I was clipping along. I came up at an intersection, the light turned green before I got there. I went flying by another bike that was parked there and then I was up to 32 kilometers an hour and this young woman went by me on this very pedestrian-y looking bike uh, at at least 10, 15 kilometers an hour faster than me. 
And, um, so I, you know, I was thinking about it, looking at that bike, there's, you know, there's no way you could pedal that bike that fast. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was only because it was some sort of override in it. Uh, you know, there's gotta be a black market for, uh, for slightly tweaked bikes. I think so. I think there probably is. Um, but you know, we shouldn't be advertising people to do those. We should be delving into my next discussion about traffic court because you and I alluded several months ago when traffic court shut down and unilaterally adjourned all traffic court hearing dates to a future date. Yes. Do you remember that? Oh, I know what your issue is and we never talked about it because we didn't want to talk about it. Yes. But then we didn't need to talk about it because oh. they opened up traffic court again. They got things scheduled. Yes, but we still, there's still something there, isn't there? Yes, there is. And there was a recent case on this issue. Mm. So, um, my concern at the time, now I'm going to show my hand it because it's okay. out there. My concern at the time was that traffic court couldn't proceed um, with any of the tickets that had been unilaterally adjourned, so long as the adjournments were longer than 90 days. So if the person had a court date on March 15th and they didn't get a court date before June 15th, then and didn't have the opportunity to ask for one earlier, then the court potentially would lose jurisdiction over the traffic ticket dispute or the prosecution of the matter under the Offense Act. Well, that's what you tried to persuade me, but I wasn't necessarily sold, but in any event. Well, I wasn't wrong. Oh, okay. Yes. So this recent case from the BC Provincial Court, this is fascinating. It's not a driving case, but it relates to traffic court and you'll see why. This is the case of Bernard... Firth and Penner, three accused, all in the downtown community court, and they were all people who had dates in March that got COVID adjourned and then COVID adjourned and then COVID adjourned again. Yes. Um, all of whom for like, I don't know, drug offenses, stuff like that. Um, and then never showed up again. And so the question for the court was, do we retain jurisdiction over these people in order to issue a warrant to compel them to come back to court. Because if the court doesn't have jurisdiction, they can't issue a warrant to compel you to come to court, right? Yes. So very similar to the tickets, you know, does the court retain jurisdiction? Were they, were they adjourned to a specific date or were they just adjourned generally with a date to be set? They were adjourned to a specific date by virtue of all of the practice directions. Okay. So Judge Harris, yes. very smart BC provincial court judge, been doing it a long time. Um, decides, you know what, we need to have a hearing. So Amicus is appointed and the Crown sends in the big guns, Rome Corot, okay. um, to come over. I don't over. think of Rome Corot as a big gun, but he's but lovely. he is. Oh, I know. He's, I just... I uh, met him in person, finally. Known him for a long time. Yeah. Well, he's lovely, but <laughs> lovely. he's, you know, he's the guy they send in when they've got some complicated legal issue. I know. And he's, I mean, he's a very smart lawyer, so. Yeah, he, he would not get involved in something recently that I think he could see I was right. <laughs> I'm not getting involved. Okay. Um, anyway, so these three people, all slightly different situations, but all of them had been effectively adjourned as a result of the, um, as a result of the pandemic. And so the question is, did, first of all, did the court even have authority to just direct these adjournments without input? Um, and the, the question that arose there was whether or not the uh, criminal code um, 
which gives the Provincial Court of British Columbia the authority to make rules for case management. So, of course, under the criminal code, right, the, the court can make rules about its own process. So the question was, do these practice directions that adjourned things yeah. to date certain, were they rules? Which is an interesting question, which was answered in the affirmative. They effectively are rules because they were like part of the case flow management rules that got incorporated into the criminal code and part of the court's power to control its process. The court says at paragraph 24, in sum, the notices which were created by virtue of the CCFM, case flow management rules, specifically rule three, which permits the issuance of directions by the chief judge. The notices in this case were simple, effective, and efficient in that they assisted in maintaining the effective and efficient management of criminal matters, which was entirely consistent with the purpose of the CCFM rules and within scope as permitted by section 482.1 sub one of the code. And then it was whether the accused had to be present. And this was for traffic court, the thing that I thought would be the best argument. Because for the COVID adjournments, everybody had the opportunity to come to court and to say, I don't want my case to be adjourned. It's urgent. I need to be, I need to have this heard yeah, now. Yeah, but that wasn't the case in traffic court. It was mass adjourned. Exactly. It wasn't the case in traffic court. So was it necessary for the accused to be present? Because under section 669.1 of the code, um, a justice may at any time before or after the the plea adjourn the proceedings in the absence of the accused. Um, the code can also allow you to try a person in the absence of the defendant. The Offense Act has similar provisions in relation to traffic court. You can you can do it without the person there, technically. Yes. You can be deemed guilty by your failure to attend traffic court. And so um, the, uh, the notices were found to be consistent with that power and um, then the court asked, was it necessary to preserve jurisdiction over the accused by issuing process when the adjournments occurred? So then when the adjournments occurred, did there need to be warrants that went out for all of these people? Some provinces issued warrants for every single person when they mass adjourned things. Wow. To compel them to come to court the next day or issued summons for yeah. the next day. And the court says... Um, that because jurisdiction over an accused who does not personally appear is not lost, provided the rules of the court permit the non-appearance, then process doesn't have to issue. So there doesn't have to be a warrant. There doesn't have to be something to compel them to come to another date, like a new notice of hearing. You can just note the non-appearance and put it over, basically. Yes. And then there's some obligation to notify the person, I guess, or for the person to check the court list and find out where their matter was adjourned to. Now, here's the fascinating part about this case. There were three accused that were being considered by the court. Mm -hmm. One person, Miss Firth, was in custody. She was released. Um, and then there were several appearances where counsel appeared on the matter. And the court determined, obviously, they were lawfully adjourned. Jurisdiction wasn't lost because there were appearances and counsel was appearing on her behalf. Yes. Mr. Bernard lost jurisdiction. The court lost jurisdiction over Mr. Bernard because he was supposed to appear in court on February 24th. He appeared. He was directed again to appear on March 16th. This is right before court shuts down. And on March 16th, he no-shows. And it gets adjourned to May 25th. 
And um, at the time of the adjournment, because it was right before co court was shutting down, but things were still running for the purposes of adjourning at a longer period of time for COVID. Yes. It was marked down as adjourned due to COVID and no warrant was issued for his arrest. And this was before the mass adjournments started occurring. Yes. So the court didn't rely on its jurisdiction um, to issue a mass adjournment, to adjourn it in the absence of him, but the file was incorrectly marked as a COVID adjournment, and the court lost jurisdiction as a result of this. And then to make matters worse, after he got adjourned May 25th to August 24th for the next round of COVID adjournments, his matter didn't make it onto the August 24th list. There was an administrative error and it dropped out of the system. So the court uh, didn't realize this until September 15th when they added it to the list. And of course, he doesn't know about this date. Of course He not. doesn't know that any of these adjournments of have happened. Of course not, yeah. And so he doesn't appear on that date. And the question is then, can process issue for him or has the court lost jurisdiction? And the court had lost jurisdiction because the notice... Uh, on April 28th, didn't reestablish jurisdiction because jurisdiction had already been lost at that point because of the improper adjournment. Fair enough. And then Mr. Penner um, appeared before the court with counsel on the, on the 16th of March, the same day Mr. Bernard was supposed to appear. Yes. His matter was adjourned and it was noted as a COVID adjournment on the record. But... Because, again, of the same administrative oversight, his matter didn't get added to the court list. So he didn't appear again August 24th. It, like Mr. Bernard, got added to the September 15th list where he didn't appear. And the question was whether or not there was process over him. But jurisdiction uh, over Mr. Penner was found to be lost, but then reacquired. Because counsel appeared as agent? No, because the court issued a warrant. Oh, um, and because unlike Mr. Bernard, Mr. Penner had appeared on March 16th and his matter had been properly adjourned and then the notice went out. Uh-huh. So what does this mean for our, our traffic court defendants? There are maybe a few people out there who are still waiting for a date that had been subject to the mass adjournment. What does this mean for them, Paul? Well, I think your argument may have some merit here. Yes, I um, think it does. And so do you want to lay it out? Well, I think the court lost jurisdiction because when court resumed, it took no steps to regain any jurisdiction. Yes. The mass adjournments occurred to an uncertain date. Yes. So the court couldn't control jurisdiction over the matter. I think that was the key thing. Mm-hmm. And they've all extended well beyond 90 days. Yes. So I think there are a significant number of people probably out there whose traffic tickets were should not be scheduled. And the, the problem, of course, is if the, you don't show up... You're going to be deemed not disputed. You're going to have it deemed not disputed. So you but, need to be able to challenge the jurisdiction. And I think probably the only way to do it is to... Hire a lawyer. Hire a lawyer. Because if you show up then you're attuning yourself to the jurisdiction of the court. Yes. So you have to send counsel with instructions to appear in a limited capacity on the issue of jurisdiction only. Yeah. Which is 
that's that's tough. That's risky. It is risky, um, and I don't know that uh, traffic court JJPs are going to decline to have jurisdiction uh, on that basis, and it might be something that you end up having to go to BC Supreme Court on. I don't think so, because there was a recent case in traffic court, not that recent now, um, where a really, really old ticket was scheduled, and the court used its power to control its process to throw it out for unreasonable That's true, delay. rather than using... Uh, yeah. It was overturned because the court, the Supreme Court said, no, he was deciding a charter issue. But they didn't say, you don't have and retain the power to control your process. True. Okay. So, you take a risk, mm -hmm. but it might be a risk worth taking. And by virtue in some of circumstances. section 117 of the Offense Act... All of the rules as far as jurisdiction and the power of the court to make rules and everything that are in the code are imputed to the Offense Act procedures. Now, I know you've had a stack of files sitting in your office that you were waiting to make this argument. And yes. there's a bunch of other arguments that you've talked about over the last few years that you waited for the opportunity for and the opportunity never arose and yeah. somebody argued it in another province and then we had a pandemic that unfortunately uh, bolstered the case for the crown in <laughs> some aspects. My question now to you, Kyla Lee, is are you looking for the file or do you have one coming up? I wouldn't want to give too much away. Okay. And the other thing is, how are you going to feel if somebody else listens to the podcast and says, hey, I'm going to try this with my client? I'm going to say they heard it here first on the Driving Law Podcast because it's here on so the Driving what, Law So basically podcast. what you're saying is that you want credit for it when, yeah. the, uh, when yeah. the, the argument is made. You want, want credit. The, you want the them to cite the Driving Law Podcast as yeah. the authority. Exactly. Right. Hey, look, you know what? There have been tweets cited as authority in Supreme Court of Canada judgments. It's only a matter of time before the Driving Law Podcast gets cited as an authority in something. Yes. Well, uh, if that's what we're cited for, then that's okay. <laughs> um, Known for the the fascinating podcast on uh, on driving law. Yeah, that's fine. Or we could be cited for or the best the, part of the podcast, which is the ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. This one. I sent you two or three this week. You so. sent me this one. I liked this one best. There was the other one involving the police officer, but that wasn't as funny. This one's funny. Which, well, I'll see if I remember it when you tell me. Paul, the Toyota Corolla <laughs> is yeah. a very reliable car. It's a fantastic car. Very well built. Um, I had a friend who had a Toyota assembly Corolla. Assembly in Canada, I think. Yeah, he had a Corolla. He had like 330,000 kilometers on it and it was still running. Andy Bonfield had a Toyota Corolla and he, uh, I sold it for him and he had a lot of kilometers on it, but it still looked pretty good and yeah. uh, drove fine. We just needed to clean it up. Cheap to repair. Oh, I mean, it was, it was bulletproof. If you, well, there's a, there's a Corolla sitting in a showroom of a Toyota dealer in Edmonton that's got a million kilometers on it. And it was a, um, a woman who worked for like the Ministry of Children uh, and Welfare. And she did uh, child apprehensions and things like that. Drove all over the province in her Corolla, kept it clean, mm -hmm. repaired it, and uh, they have it there. They bought it from her, and and uh, uh, she bought another Corolla to replace it. A million kilometers on it. 
Why would you buy another one? You have a perfectly good girl. Because she's got another, <laughs> she's got a new girl. Well, you know, there's something significant to be said about the safety improvements of cars in well, the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, but the, you know, the Toyota Corolla is such a safe car, such a great car, that you could, I don't know, fly it in the air 125 <laughs> feet, land it in the roof of a house, and still continue to drive. So where, where does this happen? Where does this happen? Uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Okay. Um, a, a, um, individual is Israel Hidalgo, um, traveling on the highway at around 10:40 PM speed limit. There is 35 miles per hour. He was going about 115. So clipping along at what's that? Like 160? Sorry, North Dakota or South Dakota? South Dakota. South Dakota. Okay. It's like what? 160? There's some hills there. 160 kilometers an hour? How, how fast was he going? 115 miles. Yeah. Yeah, fast. Yeah, about that. Sure. Left the road at an intersection trying to make a turn. Yep. Hit an embankment and went for a fly. <laughs> Launched. Launched. <laughs> Launched into the air. 125 feet he traveled in the air before landing on the roof of a house. Can you imagine? I mean, if he was awake, can you imagine that? the fear and terror in him for that period. Cause that's a long period to be feet, in the air, like, like 125 shit. feet. All you're thinking is this is it. I'm at the, at the end. I'm going to die. This is it. You're trying to it's break. A, there's no way you can survive. Yeah, I know. Like you're just thinking that's if I it. I open the doors, is yeah. that going to get me some yeah. like drag? Yeah. <laughs> air breaks. Um, the, uh, yeah, that's, you're just visualizing your death. That's it. Yeah. You can see the end is coming and it's, or you're like, maybe the Corolla is so great, it has a flight mode. Who knows? At that yeah. point, you're starting to wonder. Anyway, lands Collides on the, eventually with the a roof, house or something. The roof yeah. of a house. And uh, thankfully, the people in the That's house. It's like a crumple zone, the roof of the house. Yeah. I mean, better that than a hitting a, like a cinder block wall or something like that. Oh, it's better than like the clients of mine who've driven into the sides of houses. Yeah, the roof of a house probably collapses just nicely with a Corolla. Yeah. So does it end up in the living room or is it in the attic? Where does it end up? I don't know where it ended up in the house. It actually looks like it's right over the front door in the photos. Yes, there are photos. <laughs> Let me see. They're pulling the Corolla right out of the roof of the house, right over the front door. Oh yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> looks like, oh well, yeah, it looks like it made it sort of landed, probably went through the roof and landed in the living room and they're just lifting it out. The best, the, the best part is it actually, if you scroll up, uh, yeah. you can see one photo where it's fully out of the house and it doesn't look like the Corolla suffered that much damage. Oh yeah. Like you could probably just get a new, you know, hood. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 Kyla. <laughs> but I mean, you can see a bunch of airbags looks like they went off and, um, apparently the guy survived. Yeah. So. Survived to be charged. <laughs> 25 year old driver of a, uh. Well, they just give a, a date range of it, but they say tw 2007 to 2013 Corolla. It looks like a newer Corolla, like probably 2013. It looks like a 2012. Sailing 125 feet through the air before landing on the roof of a house. It must have been like a overpass corner or something and he just launched. But it was a 35 man, mile an hour zone. Man, he's lucky though. Like that's that a he, residential speed limit. Yeah, but I mean, uh, he, he had to be high enough in the air, right, to be able to travel at that distance like a ramp yeah and land in the house anyway boy little, is he ever lucky Bondo, land in the little house? duct tape that thing's as good as new no i don't think so <laughs> the car's done but it saved his life so there's the value of driving a new car and uh i say that when uh 
when uh, Sean Green, uh, articled student at Acumen Law Corporation, drives a 1972, I think, 1972 yep. Cadillac. 72 Cadillac. Sedan. Four-door sedan. Yep. So there you go. That's our podcast. That was a good podcast, Kyla. That Thank you like very much. It was a legally intense podcast. Well, you made it that way. I never liked the legally intense aspect of it. I mean, I'm happy to learn and everything. It's hard to squeeze the law juice out of you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I understood the jurisdiction argument from the start. Yeah. Uh, I like it. I was concerned about the lost jurisdiction when we first talked about it. And now that you can see a path using this decision from from Judge Harris. And Judge Harris, people are going to defer to him. He's, He's a very smart judge. Yep. So. Anyway, tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. And if in the meantime you need to reach us because you think the court has lost jurisdiction over you in your traffic court matter or any other driving law-related issues, give us a call, 604-685-8889, or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com.